you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 1. We're looking at the glory of the Lord, really. We've been looking at that for the last two weeks. A vision of the glorified Christ. John Piper in his book on preaching says this, People are starving for the grandeur and the glory of God, and the vast majority do not even know it. People are starving for the grandeur and the glory of God, and the vast majority of people do not even know it. And I would include Christians as well. He's not just talking about unsaved. There are many Christians who are starving for the glory of God in their life, and they don't even know it. Some say, as the psalmist, hopefully, in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God, early will I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Do you ever feel like you're in a dry and thirsty land? By the way, sometimes we get in a dry and thirsty land and we try to substitute all the, the real needs that we have, which is God, for other things. But most do not discern that they were made to thrill at the panorama, the, as it were, the landscape of God's power and His glory. That's what we were made for. <laughs> By the way, that's what we were saved for. They seek to fill the void in other ways. Even Christians. In fact, even Christians who go to church. Even Christians who go to church consistently. Many times they do not... They're not filled with the glory of God. Maybe they're even just doing it out of tradition or religiosity or whatever. But again, we want to make sure, even as we come together, why are we here? We're here to see God, right? I mean that in the sense of our mind, the minds of our heart. As David said, I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. The glory of God is, is really what it's all about. Everything moves towards the glory of God. Even the end of the earth, even the end of this time, will move towards the glory of God. I mean, that's really the heart of our teaching. Second Corinthians says this, that, we, that truth is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That's why we come together. Hopefully you get a better glimpse through truth of the glory of God. It's our goal for every action. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's the goal of our action. It's the focus of our hope. Romans 5, verse 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And, and what he's getting at there is, is that um, our hope is, I mean, we're rejoicing in our hope, and that is that we don't have to fear because we know that we are secure. We are loved. We are loved. Not only that, but uh, it will uh, someday replace the sun and the moon. Revelation 21, verse 23. Jerusalem had no need for the sun because, quote, for the glory of God illumined it and the Lamb is its light. It's all about the glory of God. And this should be the heart pang of every one of us. To have a better understanding of the glory of God. This is the heart pang of the guy that you see at the, walking down the street that does not know Jesus. And he doesn't even know it, but really the heart pang is that I would know God. This is the guy that works with you. 
And maybe he cusses and swears and he looks like he's so sufficient, but the reality is he has this heart that says there's more to see. More to understand, even though he doesn't understand that. See, the heart pang of every human being is to know God and to know his glory. But only a few can even diagnose that longing. I hope you have. In other words, this is how it plays out. I hope you see this, that, you know, Lord, you're the only one that can truly satisfy. That's how it's played out. You're the only one. There's a lot of trinkets in this world. There's a lot of cotton candy, as it were, in this world. But you're the only one that truly satisfies. That's why I actually one entire ministry is called Desiring God. Just that pursuit and passion of wanting to know God more. Is that a passion of your heart? Is that the longing of your heart? Is that the silent cry of your heart, as it were? When it's all said and done, it's really just God. Oh, there's a lot of other things that are the, the, uh, the lights of the world, you know. It's almost like sometimes I, I feel like the world is almost like um, a carnivore or a fair. You know, you go to the fair and as you're, you know, as you're dipping down and you're ready to park your car and you see all the lights of the fair and they all so look so great and the kids get all excited. Actually, even when you're there, it's not that exciting. It's just lights. It's just, it's a lot of other things than you'd think, you know. It's just, I, I don't know. It, it, that's sometimes how I, that's how we should approach the world, right? I mean, again, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We need to care about people of this world, but the world itself, it's just trinkets. We need to be like the psalmist in Psalms 27, verse 4. One thing I have desired. Now, David says, one thing I have desired for, for the Lord, that, I, that, that will I seek. And then he names it, to behold the beauty of the Lord, the, the, the delightfulness of the Lord. That's the one thing. Of all the other things that he could desire as king, just let me see your beauty. But again, sometimes it doesn't cry out like that. You know, we... Get enamored by other things. We need to be like Moses in chapter 33 of Exodus. Please show me your glory. Or as Isaiah instructs uh, Israel. And he says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. That's how we should be. We should be encouraging each other in the glory of God. Have you seen God? And I don't mean physically. I'm saying, do you understand his beauty? Do you really grasp his holiness? Do you see his glory? Do you see his loveliness? And I'm sure some of you are maybe even saying this, like, what are you talking about? In other words, you know, at, at weddings I'll often say, to the woman, the girl being married, do you like this word, cherished? The question, because that's what the husband is supposed to do to the wife, right? Cherish her. But we should be that of, with, with the Lord. We should cherish him, right? Of, of all that, one thing I desire, just one thing. This is the, the ultimate thing, that I would behold the beauty of the Lord. Oh, there's many times I don't. There's many times that a lot of other things... Take me away from that. But we need to see the Lord. And we're going to see the Lord high and lifted up. That's what we've been seeing for the last two weeks. You know, a true picture of the glory of Christ. 
So if God's beauty and glory and grandeur is supreme in our lives, then will we not go uh, to satisfying our de- we will not go to satisfying our desires and longings to the cotton candy, candy pleasures of the past times of this world, you know? I mean, you know what's really sad? Isn't it sad that some people are more excited about some game that's being played later on today than even being in here to worship Christ? Isn't that sad? Isn't that just really, really, really pathetically sad? I mean, that is so sad it should almost make us cry. That something of that temporal, of a temporal value of that would override. In fact, that some might even be thinking about that game versus the glory of God at this moment. It's just sad. I mean, it's, it just shows where we're at. It's, the, again, the cotton candy pleasures of this world. That's why Paul says, you know, that I might know him. No, my, Paul could say the same thing as David. The one thing in my heart, the one passion, the drive, that I might know him. Now, when we think about knowing him, let me give you an illustration. It shouldn't be like a microscope. You know, like a microscope, and you were in probably biology class when you were going through high school, and they would put some item there, you know, some little thing, and, and a protozoa or whatever, and then you would try to... And, and what the microscope did was this, make something small, big enough so you could see it. We shouldn't look at uh, the glory of God like through a microscope. It should be like a telescope. What is a telescope? Telescope takes the grandeur of the universe and brings it to you. That's how it should be seen. In other words, God is high and lifted up. Lord, just give me a glimpse of that. Bring it close to me. So we should make the unimaginable great galaxies of his glory visible to my human heart. That's what I'm asking for. So again, mankind is starving for the glory of God. It's starving for the enjoyment of God. But do you recognize your own need in that? Jonathan Edwards wrote this, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be truly satisfied. Now, I'm going to quote Jonathan Edwards a number of times because, you know, we think of Jonathan Edwards, and and for most, many times, what you think of is his his one famous uh, sermon, um, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And one of the illustrations is where he says, you're, you're like a spider hanging on to its web over the eternal flames of hell, ready to be consumed. And I mean, like people were like, you know, crying out for mercy. What you don't realize with, many times with Edwards is, his, his, really what he's most known for and what he um, really wrote more about was the glory of God. See, he was able to say that about sinners because he, was already, he, was, he had already seen and glimpsed the glory of God. So he's a man who really does, uh, had a really good grasp of the grandeur of God. So again, the, this is what he says, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be truly satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, or children, or the company of an earthly friend are but shadows, but God is the substance. Those relationships are but streams. God is the ocean. Do you think of it that way? 
like of all the relationships, of all the things that we could consider as good on this earth, they're just like streams. They're just the shadow. God is the substance. God is the ocean. God is the one that can only truly satisfy. Do you, do you believe that? I, I hope you do. I mean, I hope you are at least saying, you know what, you might be saying it this way. Well, I do believe it, but I know that I've, I've gone through some dry times. Well, that's because we've, we've tried to feast on the shadow, not on the actual substance, right? See, sometimes we do go to the other. We think that that's going to satisfy, and it satisfies for a moment. It satisfies for a moment, but not for long. Let's go to Revelation. Again, we've already, read, we've already studied this, but I think it's worth reading, because again, this shows the glory of Christ. Verse 12, Revelation 1.12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. By the way, this is visible to him, vision, through a vision. But when I'm talking about the glory of God, I'm talking about not just seeing him this way, but as far as how those attributes play out in our lives. See, each one of those are talking about attributes. Just... Example, his head and hair, that's talking about his wisdom. His eyes, that's talking about his discernment. His feet were like fine breaths, that's talking about how he works in our lives. He chastens us. He disciplines us. So he can purify us. Out of his voice is a sound of many waters. And in his right hand, seven stars. Well, that, that talks about protection. That talks about comfort. That talks about authority. That talks about protection as far as protecting us from the evil one and those in the world that would seek to harm and hurt us. See, the vision has implication as far as how does he relate to us. And when we talk about the glory of God, we want to see his power, his authority, his omniscience. We want to see how he relates to us as, as a father and he cares and he's concerned. All those things. That's where... Jonathan Edwards would say the enjoyment of God. That's why he loved thinking about God. <sighs> My father takes care of me. I tell you, when you can get to that point, and sometimes I'm in and out of that point, depending on if the transmission just went bad on my car, right? Or depending on if somebody's really bothering me or hurting me. But the point is when you can find solace and rest in the fact of who God is. And he is protecting, and you can, as the scripture says over and over again in the Old Testament, rest in him. Or as Paul said, that I might know him. The more I know him and his characteristics and his character and his attributes, the more I can trust him, the more he becomes beautiful to us, right? Well, let's go on, because this is what we're going to be looking at today. Verse 17. And when I saw him, this is Christ he's seeing, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. 
Boy, I tell you, there's a lot right there. A lot of beauty of the Lord right there. Verse 19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So what we want to do is just look at the three reactions of John when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, as Isaiah would say, right? As he saw who the Lord really was in his, in his shining glory, visibly shining glory, what were the reactions of John? The first one was fear. Just absolute terror. You've got to see that. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. By the way, in just the next sentence, he says, do not be afraid. But the reaction of a human, a sinner, when he sees Christ, the Holy One, what is it? Just fell at his feet as dead. By the way, when you're dead, you have no reaction. You know, dead people don't see. Dead people don't talk. Dead people just lay there. That's what he's saying. I just, I just fell. And, and you might say, well, that must be unique to John. Actually, this is how the response of... When people see the glory of God, the first reaction is fear. The first one. Daniel chapter 10, it says this, verse 6. I might have written some of these in your notes. Daniel 10, 6. His body was like burl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire. Do you see how Daniel is referring to the same exact type of scenario as far as Revelation? His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color and the sound of his voice like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them. What's interesting is Daniel doesn't even refer to himself. He just says, just when the vision was there, they, they were totally terrorized. Just the fact of the presence. So that they fled to hide themselves. They, they left quaking, trembling, fear. That's what we were trying to... In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was overwhelmed by the vision of God that he saw in the temple. He, remember when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. This is what he says. Woe is me, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. The word is, I'm unraveling. I'm, you know, the best illustration as I've given to you is, uh, how many of you crochet? Billy, do you crochet? Good. Okay. <laughs> do you ever crochet and you find that you have a problem? Like, oh, wow, you know, six depth, and then you say, oh, I got to, and I think if you take it, you can just unravel. You know, sometimes as a kid, you know, you get a crocheted blanket and they're playing around and it, you know, and all of a sudden you start seeing him. Zzz, no, no, Johnny, don't be touching that. That's my great-grandma Braze, you know, that she made you. But the point is, is the point is, what is the point? The point is, that's the illustration. When he says, woe is me, he's saying, I'm unraveling. Like, I can't stand. Like, I, I'm not going to be confident. You can't be confident in the glory of God. I mean, you can't be confident when you stand before the glory of God. Ezekiel saw several visions of the Lord's glory, and his response was always the same. He fell on his face, like Ezekiel 128. This, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of, of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face. And he says that like 
I think one, two, three, four, five times. Five times in Ezekiel, every time he sees the glory of God, he what? Falls on his face. Manoah, Samson's father, said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. Talking about the angel of the Lord. Job 42, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes seize you. Therefore, I hate myself, I despise myself, and repent in dust and ashes. And again, that's a sign of humility. Again, fear and humility. Now, the, the, one of the, um, remember Paul, Saul, and I wrote to Damascus, he sees the, the Lord and says this, and when we all had fallen to the ground, <laughs> Paul, or Saul at the time, with his companions, the glory of the Lord, they all fell to the ground. And then, this is speaking of unbelievers, this last passage in, uh, in Revelations, after witnessing the terrible calamity of the opening of the sixth seal, the unbelievers during the tribulation will cry out in horror, quote, to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? I mean, they just, absolute terror when Christ finally comes back to judge the earth. Now, I, I read those, and it took a few moments, but isn't that in stark contrast from what you hear on, like, the Trinity Broadcast Network? When people are standing there, and it's almost like, try, yeah, I saw Jesus, you know. I was shaving one day, and Jesus showed up, and he was talking with me as I was shaving. That's that silly, frivolous you know, quite honestly, false claims. When you see the Lord high and lifted up, what's the natural response? Fear, terror, fall on your face, humility, dust and ashes. Again, our confidence is gone. Why? We've seen the Lord. We've seen the blazing glory of Christ. Now, now you say, man, you're really painting a real negative picture here. I thought this was somehow supposed to be a positive message. Well, I will say this, you know, the fear of the Lord, if you go through just the Proverbs, just the Proverbs, it's really pretty insightful when you, when you see the fear of the Lord is. Like uh, Proverbs 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding, or the fear of the Lord is the uh, beginning of, um, what's the other one? Hmm. Maybe it's just those two. Wisdom, understanding, oh, Knowledge. But it also goes on, like if you just do a little study of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, and by the way, the fear there is not just reverence. I, I've heard over the years, well, that's you know, really just talking about a reverential awe of God. Well, it's that, but it goes beyond that. There's at times, I mean, when we approach God, there should be an awe for sure. There should be a reverence, but there should actually be a, the heart that, that starts to crumble. We see God high. We're sinners. Yes, we've been brought in through the blood of the Lamb. Yes, we have confidence to be able to pray. But there should be an awesome respect. There should be our knees get weak, as it were. Again, confidence. But can, do you see how confidence you can still have just an awe and a respect and a reverence? And when you see yourself as you know, failing, that there is just a seriousness. See, Proverbs says this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. That means absolute hate evil. It also says that the, in the fear of the Lord, you will depart from evil. 
How many of you have been struggling with the same sin over and over again, that besetting sin? See, before you go to the table, make sure you confess that. But the fact that we so easily fall back into our sin tells us that we don't have the fear of the Lord as we ought. Because the fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. The fear of the, in, the, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, Proverbs 14 says. It's a place of ref, refuge. It's a place of a fountain of life. It leads to life. It leads to riches and honor and life. But again, it's a, there's a seriousness. I go back to that because I look at my life and at times I say, you know, why do I keep going back to certain sins? Because the fear of God, seeing his glory, is not as strong in my life as I think it is. We've got to make sure that we're willing to, to actually acknowledge that. That's all I'm trying to say. So the first response uh, to John is fear. Now, thankfully, next verse, the next part of the verse says this, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. That's comfort. First response, fear. Second response, comfort. Why? Because there's a relationship. By the way, we should be comforted. We should have great confidence as long as we're walking with him. My concern is this. Christians who are not walking with Jesus but feel like, well, I have great comfort in the fact, man, I'm one of his and I'm in his family. And there just doesn't seem to be a seriousness to deal severely with their sin. But he lays his hand on them. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. By the way, he laid his... It says in verse 16, go back just a verse... It says he had in his right hand seven stars. Now, in verse 16, it wasn't about comfort. The stars refer to the angels of the seven churches, and there, the hand represented authority, control. Here, the hand represents comfort. Isn't that true, like, in your own life? If you're a parent, you've seen this many times, right? The same child that when they were wrong... As they were walking to their bedroom, you'd go like this. I don't want you to ever do that again. And maybe you spank them with your hand. But later on, when they, that same day, when they were out playing in the yard, and they really got hurt bad, and they came in just crying, what did you do? Come over here. Let me give you comfort. So the same hand that shows control in verse 16 shows comfort. In verse 17, he lays his hand on John. I just love that. By the way, there's a real something we need to remember, you know, when it comes to each other even. And I mean doing this appropriately. But don't fear the touch. Is Brent here? I don't, I don't I think he's out of town. Brent, was, Brent Reynolds was one that helped me with that years ago. Touch. You know, he'd come up, come on, John, give me a hug. <laughs> yeah. This is what Jesus is actually saying. Literally, when it says, do not be afraid, it says, stop being afraid. Stop being fearful. See, our first response is fear. And it still should remain, like I said, awe and reverence. Should have fear if there's sin in our lives, it's unrepentant. But, but, but this should be the overwhelming right here. It's comfort. Why? The comfort of Christ offered was based on who he is, and the authority he possesses. He's comforting one of his sheep. And he does it by four different titles, really. Look at how he, he not only just because of his touch, notice what he says. He says, first of all, 
I am. I am. Now, I am goes way back to Exodus 3, verse 14, where God is talking to Moses. Remember when Moses is not sure and he doesn't want to go and tell the people. And, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's what Moses is told by Jehovah. Tell him that the I am sent you. Now, the I am refers back to the covenant-keeping God. In other words, when Jesus said this to John, I am the first and the last, the I am is, I mean, that, that would be a me, oh, wait, the covenant keeper. Jesus Christ is the covenant keeper. What's interesting with all these titles, they all parallel the Father in the Old Testament. You see, or in the New Testament. In other words, what Jesus calls himself is also be, has, either, has been said of the Father beforehand. Which means this, I and the Father are one. Three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what could be said of the Father can be said of the Son. Why? Because it's a Trinity. God is one. And please don't ask me to explain that at the moment. Right? Finite minds, but the reality is Trinity. But what can be said of the Father can be said of the Son. So he says, I am. That should give great comfort to the Apostle. Why? Because I am the one who keeps my word. I am the covenant-keeping God. I am the, as I put in your parentheses in your outline, the sovereign, self-sufficient one. He used the same type of terminology when the, with the disciples that were terrified. And immediately it says in Mark, Matthew 14, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. In other words, periodically when they were terrified, he would say, it is I, it is I, the I am. <laughs> Do you remember who I am? We can have, we can have, we, we gain comfort because of who Christ is. And, and by the way, he used this I am before. Remember in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. Which meant this, he was eternal. Because he's saying, listen, before Abraham even lived, I was in existence. So that's the first point of comfort. Second of all, Jesus identified himself as the first and the last. By the way, this is also being said of God in verse 11. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Okay, so it's already in reference to him. I am the first and the last. This was also a, a title used of God in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, it says, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no, no God. That was Isaiah. So what was said of God in the Old Testament is also said of Christ in the New. Now, how does that give him comfort? It means that he's the eternal one. The first and the last. I'm the eternal one. Which means this. He will remain. Now, I just want you to think about this. That our God is beyond time. He will remain. He's always been. He always will be. In fact, that's why in uh, you know, the first part of the, the passage in, in chapter 1, he says this over and over again in different ways. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who was, or excuse me, who is, who was, and who is to come. You see that if you go through just up to where we've been in the first 18 verses, over and over again, he keeps going back to the fact, I'm the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the eternal one. I'm beyond time. When all the problems of this world are done, I still stand. In other words, 
He was before and will be after all the other false god. He remains. He's forever. He was before all that we see and know. And he'll be here when everything is gone. That should bring great comfort to a broken disciple on a desolate island, or at least for aliens. He's struggling even to survive, and he says, I'm the first and the last. How about the third one? Jesus identifies himself as the living one. I am who, was, who, who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I'm the living one. Again, used of the Father in Joshua chapter 3, verse 10. It says, by this you shall know that the living God is among you. That's what Joshua tells the Israelites before they go into the land. That the living one is among you. And he repeats it in Matthew 16. Peter does about Christ. When Peter is asked, he answers and says this, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. <coughs> over and over again. How do we get... See, this is, this is seeing Christ high and lifted up. This is beholding the glory of Christ. That he is the I am. He is the first and the last. He is the living one. I'm not, I'm not talking about uh, gazing on the fact that his hair was white like wool. But we start realizing he is the eternal one. We have been brought into the family of the one who is beyond time. You know, let's just break this down right here. First of all, he says, I am he who lives. Okay, but then he says this, and was dead. Now, isn't that kind of odd? I am the living one, but I am was dead. Well, wait a second. Usually it's, usually it's you're living, and then you become dead. But he actually says, I'm living now, but I was dead back here. And obviously that's a sacrifice. Literally it means I became dead. The living one, the eternal self-existent son of God, who could never die, became a man so that he could die. Goes back to his crucifixion, goes back to his death. I'm the living one, but I was dead. I.e., and I rose again, and I have ascended, and I have been coronated, and I'm coming back. Do you think that brings comfort to a, that lonely apostle? I think we need to remember that. that. Isn't that an old truth? We need to remember the old truth, right? That we serve the living one. Was dead, but not what? I am alive forevermore. Christ lives forever in union of, the glorify, of his glorified body, right? Of humanity and deity. Never to die again, Romans 6 says. Never to die again. One sacrifice, complete, never to die again. So he says it. I'm the living one who was dead, but alive forevermore. He's not going to, you know, have you ever had this thought? I wonder if, you know, this whole scenario will be played out again in eternity future. Have you ever had that thought? I've had it at times. The whole scenario. Create an earth, Christ died. No. This, this, that right there forever puts, this is the only time the Son of God will ever be crucified, will ever die, will ever come in human flesh. Most of you are like, what are you talking about? I'm just in, emphasizing that this little time frame is unique to all of eternity and it will never be repeated. And that's why he even says, look at this, Behold! I am alive forevermore. And then finally, I have the keys of Hades and death. Keys mean authority. 
He's talking about access and authority when he uses the word death. In other words, I control Hades, which is the... If you, those who are unsaved go to Hades right now. Ultimately, we judge at the great white throne and thrown into the lake of fire, which is hell. It's really, and it's wrong to say that Hades is hell. Hades is just the uh, county jail. Hell is a state penitentiary. Okay, that's a bad analogy, but you get the point. But the point. This is the point. I have the keys. That's the point. John, you will die no sooner or no later than exactly when I want you to die. You can't add, as Matthew 6 says, a cubit of time to your life. You can, by the way, work out at the gym for three hours a day and eat all healthy food such as tofu and I still have the keys of death. Right? Now here it's the context... You know, when he says Hades and death, he's referring to the negative. But the, we're in his hands. The whole world's in his hands. Jesus himself said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Right? So our destination is secure, absent from the body, present with the Lord. All judgment, and John 5 says, has been given to the Son by the Father. And Jesus wants to assure his Little lamb, hey, death and hell, I've got the key. Nobody else. Domination, the emperor, doesn't have the key. Obama does not have the key. The king of Saudi Arabia, Arabia we just found out, didn't have the key because he just died. <laughs> now, by the way, I mentioned Obama. I can use Baynard. I don't care who you... Nobody has the key. Christ has the key. Right? Don't ever think of that as always being political. No! Humans don't have the key. The Son Son of God has the key. And we need to uh, view His beauty. That gives us hope. Because that gives us hope and comfort and peace. Look at the last response. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which that will take place. By the way, you know, I told you last week, seven times John keep, or uh, Christ keeps telling John, write these things down. I'm sure at this point John, is, <laughs> he's not thinking about pen and paper, but he says, write it down. It is interesting that I think he, this verse literally breaks down the book of Revelation. The things that you have seen is chapter 1, the vision of Christ, always has been. The things which are is verses two and three, uh, chapters two and three, which is the the letters to the church. It's present time, and the things that will take place after this is the future. That's chapters four through twenty-two. That one verse breaks down the, the book. But let's go beyond that and just look at the responsibility. He tells him to write. You got something to do. You see the glory of God. There's something to do. And so he gives him a command, write. It's John's duty to pass on the truths that he had learned of the, from the vision to the seven churches and to us. Like John, all Christians have a duty to pass on truths we learn, right? By the way, let's just say it in more broad terms. As Christians, as we behold the beauty of the Lord, we have responsibilities. We need to serve. We need to, in other words, get active now, you might be able to say this. Some might say, well, John, he's in prison. 
He's desolate. He's isolated. He's, you know, he hasn't eaten probably very little food, just the clothes on his back. He was in exile. Does God really expect a person such as that to still serve? Yeah. Now think about, but think about how many excuses we come up with of why we don't serve. I'm busy doing this, or I'm busy doing that, or I've got this health issue, or I've got these children, or do you know my wife? No. No, 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 no. When you see God high and lifted up, the next response should be, Lord, use me. And that's what Isaiah, right? Remember when he, Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. All these, you know, I'm dirty, I'm filthy. Lips out of the heart, the mouth speaks. He talks about the, but then it says, One of the angels, a seraphim, flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, and basically cleansed his lips. In other words, he's purged, he's clean. The iniquity, iniquity was taken away. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. What is the natural response of a, a man or a woman who has seen the glory of God? Lord, use me. First of all, I get terrified. I am comforted. Then I'm purified because Christ died for my sins. I'm walking with him. But the natural response is ultimately, Lord, I want to be used. I want to serve. When, in fact, you can kind of test your glory quotient. You know, you have an IQ, intelligent. How about your GQ? Your, nah, let's not use that one. Uh, that's why you should never do illustrations on the fly. Let's just say... <laughs> what's my point? My point is this. Sometimes the best point is when you just leave that point totally there. The best point is this. If you say that you see the glory glory of the Lord high and lifted up, and your heart doesn't say, Lord, just use me, and not only use me, but actually use me, in other words, I want to be used and I am going to be used, I want, then just know that you really haven't seen the glory of the Lord. Right? The glory of the Lord just, just, just energizes let me close with an article actually given to me by Dale Vance yesterday at men's prayer, but it was so appropriate. And, and it was written by a man who actually evaluated and analyzed Jonathan Edwards' life and his writings. And the article says this. Uh, this is the uh, title. God's beauty for the bored, the busy, and the depressed. God's beauty for the bored, the busy, and the depressed. I wish I could read the whole article. I, I won't have time. Let me pick out a couple of things. Because what he's basically saying is this. When you see the glory of God, things in your life that are overwhelming, sins, things like that, just fall off. So what does God's splendor have to do with my daily life right now anyways? Well, it actually affects some th- things. Your busyness, your temptations, and your boredom. God's beauty soothes our busy and anxious hearts. That's the first thing. When you see the glory of the Lord, it just soothes your busy and anxious hearts. The beauty of God's tender mercies calms me down. It lets me breathe again. Do you need to breathe again? It slows my heart's frantic scurry about. 
There is so much ambiguity in living as a moral being. In all my anxiety, he is, un, he is undeterred and, and the gentle father who has adopted and justified me. See, the first thing that the beauty of the Lord does, it just calms you. You can breathe again. The beauty of the Lord also destroys temptation in our life. God's beauty fills the affections of our heart, which is essential if we are going to meet our foes of sin and temptations with success. The world tells me that selfish indulgence and lust is where the fun is. On the contrary, Edwards writes all over the place about, the, about quietly enjoying the beauty of God and communing with him and his son, who is the mighty and radiant friend of sinners like me. To use the word of Edwards delightful, that he delightfully used, he, he said it this way, enjoying God's, God happifies us, happifies us. It's not a word, so it's hard. Happifies us. Makes me happy. And seeing the beauty of the Lord happifies, happifies us. <laughs> well, it's such an odd word, but I want you to remember that. The beauty of the Lord happifies us. H-A-P-P-I-F-I-E-S. Happy-fies. <laughs> One of the crucial battles of the Christian life is discovering the true ugliness of sin and exposing its destructiveness. Sin is the enchanting allure of what is going to kill you. I can't help but jump into the water of sin and get slammed against the rocks of judgment and hell and death. I have no willpower to stop it. I cannot stop myself. I need a higher loveliness, a more compelling beauty. I'm only going to do what I love to do, and I will be that way forever. I cannot function any other way. I have a beauty thirst that must be quenched. And you know who quenches it? The Lord. See, the Lord quenches that beauty thirst that we have. I don't mean physical. I mean just the... I'm looking. I'm looking. My heart, is, my heart is thirsty. My heart is hungry. My heart is a worshiping. It's worshiping. It's always worshiping something. And so we need to see God high and lifted up in our hearts. And that will happify us. Happify us. <laughs> like I said, I shouldn't be reading things that I haven't... Pre I mean, I haven't... No illustrations, just off the cuff. See, we all need this. Why is it that the 60-year-old guy leaves his wife for a younger woman? Looking for beauty. Why is the teenager looking at porn? The banker checking his personal accounts every hour, seeing where the Dow goes up or down. The pastor feeding his soul on the nicotine of congr congregational approval. Oh, that hurt. See, sin is enchanting. It's got an allurement to it. But when you see the beauty of the Lord, see, that becomes the greater uh, glory, the greater beauty. You run after that. And then finally, the beauty, of bo uh, uh, beauty destroys boredom. Just as God's beauty confronts our anxieties and our temptations, so also it confronts the spiritual hazards of our boredom. Do you ever get bored? Yeah, I get bored. Let's go to Darien Lake. I get bored. Let me watch another game. No, really, we try to fill our boredoms with a lot of things, don't we? Do you remember that tragic story in 2013? The guy from, I think it was Australia, and uh, three young guys came up and shot him dead. And they asked him why, and they said, well, we're just bored. Wanted to do something. 
identify that guy and said, he's the one we're going to kill. I mean, that's how strong boredom can, can be. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, sin always in some sense, in some sense, is a life of boredom. Sin is always in some sense a life of boredom. We get bored with God, we find something else. Our heart is moving. That's the point. It's alive and well, and we're worshiping, and that's why we need to find the beauty in our Lord. Finally, that's where, that's where sin takes us. Among other reasons, hell is hell because it's so boring. Yes, boring. Because hell is being stuck eternally in self-centeredness that is blind to all eternal beauty. Unsatisfied within, unhappy without. But on the other hand, holiness is fun. Can I say that again? Holiness is playful, it's clean, it's bright, it's, it's not dark. Because we have been swept up into the love of the Trinity. We have been justified and ratified. We have become human again. See, hell is boring. Heaven is exciting. It's fresh, it's new, it's alive. Now again, sometimes we think of, we think of holiness sometimes wrongly, don't we? I mean, sometimes we don't think of holiness as beautiful and lovely. We think of it as melancholy and morose and a sour thing. And yet really, true holiness, truly seeing God, truly seeing his glory is the most refreshing and freeing that we could ever be, right? The closer you go to God, the closer you see him, the more you're in fellowship with him in the sense of he has more of you. You don't get more of him, but you have, have, he has more of you. Isn't that, isn't, don't you just, more peace, more joy, more freedom. Isn't that how it is? So we have the great opportunity as we come before the Lord's table right now that I would ask that you bow your heads. And I, two things. One, again, are you truly a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you truly received him as your Lord and Savior? Given up your sin, cried out for mercy, received him as the only sacrifice? But the second question is this. Am I truly walking with him? If you're a Christian, are you truly walking with him? Not just that your sin has been taken care of, and in, in other words, your daily sin, your fessed up as it were. But can you honestly say, Lord, I am pursuing your beauty. I am pursuing your holiness. I am pursuing your grandeur. I am finding that you are more beautiful than all the cotton candy and all the trinkets of this world. That my greatest joy in my heart leaps as I learn more of you. And you may honestly say, you know what, that is not me. And I would ask that you would confess that, and, and, but you make that commitment. Lord, I need to get into your word to see your beauty. And if you are there, I would say the first place you start is in the Psalms. Pursue God through the Psalms. That's where you find worshiping him, right? So spend some time praying. Ushers, if you'd come forward as we partake.